Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The first anti-abortionists were doctors. Until the mid-19th century, abortion was dangerous, loosely regulated, and easily accessible in America. Aborting a pregnancy wasn't illegal until a woman had felt a baby move or kick inside her. With primitive medical technology, this moment, turned quickening, was the only way to be sure of a pregnancy. Because it usually relied on the woman herself to testify that this had happened, even post-quickening abortions were rarely prosecuted. But then doctors began to organise. In 1847, the American Medical Association was formed by a group of male physicians keen to mark their territory. They wanted to make the procedure more scientific and safer and to take the responsibility for performing abortions away from the nurses and midwives who most often did it. They pushed states to outlaw abortion and by 1910 it was illegal everywhere except for when a woman's life was at risk. And then, in 1973... The Supreme Court's ruling in Roe v. Wade made abortion, until viability, a constitutional right. With 52 days until the midterm elections, I'm John Priddo and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, will abortion decide the midterm elections? The most significant moment in the midterms campaigns may have come back in June. That was when the Supreme Court decided to overturn Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs v. Jackson ruling, taking away the federal right to an abortion and sending the decision back to the states. This fired up Democratic candidates and voters. The party's been doing well in special elections and referendums and making gains in the polls. How much is this to do with the fight for abortion rights? With me this week to try and figure out exactly what the role of abortion will be in this year's midterms are Charlotte Howard in New York and Idris Kaloon in Washington. Charlotte, what's going on in Manhattan? Well, there are many things happening in Manhattan. Among the most noticeable things happening in Manhattan is the entire population has been turned into an army of stomping lanternfly killers. There's this invasive species of sort of inch-long lanternflies that we've been instructed as a population to step on. So if you go around Midtown Manhattan, you'll see lots of business people in business attire frantically stomping as if they're um, poorly trained tap dancers on these vicious looking bugs. That, that's an amazing image. Thank you. Idris, what's going on in Washington? Are you fighting off any plagues? 
Well, just the usual political kind, uh, which cannot be stamped out or eradicated. But things are good here. It was nice to see you in London and Harriet, our producer, as well. I was just there last week. I went to a wedding in Cheshire in a place called Natwich, which sounds... Made up. Mythical. Straight out of Jane Austen. A lot of our colleagues are very fond recollections of Cheshire. And I told one of our British colleagues that I was going there and said that it didn't sound real. And she was like, no, 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 I was just there. I was just had a very lovely drive through the Wallops, which are apparently also a real place. They all sound very bad in my American accent. They sound much better in theirs. Right. We're going to start by looking at what's been going on in one state in particular. And you've been there, Idris, with your notebook. Yeah, that's right. I went to Michigan with our colleague Stevie Hertz, uh, who many of you are familiar with to get a sense of how abortion was changing the elections there. And although in a lot of states, Democrats are very energized by the dissolution of Roe versus Wade, uh, abortion may end up affecting the elections in Michigan more than in any other place. Hey, are you calling? My name is Jaren. I'm a volunteer with Reproductive Freedom for All. On Labor Day weekend, Jaron Totten was out knocking on doors in Greenacres, a suburb of Detroit. So a few months ago, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And so we're fighting to keep those protections here in the state of Michigan. He's pitching voters on a ballot measure coming up in November. It would amend the Michigan state constitution to guarantee a right to an abortion. And we're hoping you will vote for Prop 3. All right, awesome. In Greenacres, lawns are speckled with Black Lives Matter and Joe Biden signs. We're just a few blocks from Rashida Tlaib's, one of the furthest left members of the House, her new district. So canvassing here isn't about trying to persuade swing voters, but really explaining the measure to sympathetic ears. Plenty don't need any help on that front. Roberta flags down the canvases to offer them peppermint patties and a show of support. So remember to vote yes on Prop 3, November 8th. You know I know that. You can't take my rights away from me ever since my ancestors were beat up. Michigan currently exists in a legal purgatory for abortion. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, an old 1931 law was supposed to come into effect. One of the strictest bans in the country, it would have completely forbidden abortion unless needed to save the life of the mother. Courts temporarily suspended it and abortion is currently legal in the state. But perhaps just until voters have a chance to have their say with the referendum campaign. The ballot measure would enshrine a right to abortion up to viability and after to protect life and physical or mental health, a standard similar to that in New York and California. I think we're going to see people from all over the political spectrum coming out to vote no specifically on this amendment because it's not the solution for our state. It is a bridge too far. It's dangerous for women and children. Kristen Polo is part of Citizens to Support Michigan Women and Children, the campaign opposing the ballot initiative. They've dubbed it the Anything Goes Amendment. If this is passed, all of our voices, all of our opinions are silenced forever because we will have put the most extreme abortion policy into our state constitution forever, repealing health and safety standards that protect women, repealing parental consent. The pro-amendment team say they're just restoring the rights had under Roe. But campaigners on either side of the debate are trying to paint their opponents as extreme. Because people in Michigan, like in America as a whole, are pretty moderate when it comes to abortion. In polls, just over half of Michiganders say they're pro-choice. It is a gorgeous Saturday afternoon. 
Standing on a fruit crate in front of a small crowd at a high school football field, Governor Gretchen Whitmer's pitch for re-election has a lot on protecting abortion. And the only thing that is keeping Michigan a place where women still have the right to make decisions around their bodies and their health care is my veto, my lawsuit, and the work that we are doing together. As governor, Whitmer is able to veto any anti-abortion regulation that the state house, which is currently controlled by Republicans, passes. And Whitmer's Republican gubernatorial challenger, Tudor Dixon, opposes abortion even in cases of rape and incest. It's a stance echoed by other Republicans, up and down the ticket. That position gives Whitmer plenty to attack when speaking with Idris and me after her speech. Listen, Michigan is a state that for 49 years has given women the ability to make their own decisions about their bodies. Today's Republican Party in Michigan is incredibly extreme. They want to roll us back to 1931, making abortion a felony, no exceptions for rape or incest, putting doctors and nurses in jail. And that is absolutely not even reflective of who the Republicans are in this state. But that's what the leadership is, and that's why this is such an important moment not just for Michigan, but for our nation. Elections in Michigan have been close in recent years. In the weeks after the leak of the decision overturning Roe and then the decision itself, the state saw a spike in voter registration, particularly among women. Do you think it will be the defining issue of this election? I think it's front and center for a lot of people. I mean, this is about our right to have be full citizens and have full rights over our bodies, over our destinies, and to make our choices, and that's why... I do think that this will be a big part of the decision that voters are are weighing as they go to the polls in November. Of course, abortion is just one part of that decision. Tudor Dixon has recently said voters could support the referendum and enshrine abortion rights in the Constitution, but then still vote for her as governor over schools and economic issues. And I believe that Michigan is the birthplace of the middle class. We invented the concept that if you work on Alyssa Slotkin is a Democrat, representing Michigan's 7th Congressional District. Her race for re-election is close. The Economist's midterm model currently has a chance of winning at 51 in 100. My whole thing is protect and expand the middle class. I will do anything, whether it's on prescription drugs or veterans... At a campaign event at a union hall in Lansing, with black and white portraits of old Labour chiefs on the wall, abortion doesn't come up. But speaking with us afterwards, Slotkin said that's unusual. I'm, I'm actually surprised it didn't come up because yeah. it's come up in every event, every venue, even when the topic we're there for has nothing to do with choice because it's very real here. It's not a, a drill here. The way that it has come up to me in a district that in general would describe itself as pro-life is just the sheer number of Republican women who have stopped me, come up to me, pulled me aside at events and wanted to have a conversation about this. She is by no means running from abortion, but Slotkin does think of it in a way to appeal to a district that voted for Donald Trump twice. If you look at what's been going on here for the past two and a half years, our protests, the anger against COVID lockdowns and mask mandates and armed people going into our capital over those frustrations, and it's basically been a two and a half year conversation about personal freedom Mm -hmm. and the role of government in our life. And I just, we do not like the government telling us what to do. And this is the extreme example of government telling you what to do. When it comes to many issues in Washington, Slotkin prides herself on her moderate stances and ability to compromise. 
On abortion, she gives her full-throated support to the right to choose. It shows how powerful the issue could be here, not just in turning out the base, but also in reaching voters across the state. Idris, that's really interesting. I wondered from listening to you and Stevie in Michigan how sui generis that state is. I mean, there's a particular case with the ancient law that's on the books in Michigan. And I wondered if we can generalize from that state to others or if Michigan is really an exception. I think what Stevie and I saw in Michigan applies to a few other states and especially a few of the states that are going to be very hotly contested this cycle I remember when I was in Arizona, there was a similar debate brewing about this old abortion law, I think from the 1910s or so, which also would have outlawed abortion in the state, and that's been litigated as well. And then in Pennsylvania, voters are concerned that Doug Mastriano, who's running as the Republican nominee to be governor, would, with the assistance of a Republican state legislature, severely restrict abortion. Stacey Abrams, uh, who has moderated her positions in Georgia, has been pretty full-throatedly attacking Brian Kemp, the governor there. So I think that you see it all over the states. Charlotte, before we take this any further, can you give us a quick recap on the state of abortion law in America post the Dobbs decision and and how it varies state by state? Right. So there were a number of states that had trigger laws in the books that were going to prohibit abortion in most circumstances, with maybe a few exceptions. But there were laws that had very broad restrictions that were to go in effect immediately after Dobbs. So Mississippi is one example. And it basically banned abortion except to save the life of the pregnant person or in cases of of rape or incest. Um, Georgia, South Carolina, Arkansas, Oklahoma, these are some of the states that had trigger bans in place. But then there are lots of additional laws to restrict abortion that have been advanced in this year. So there are more than 100 bills to restrict access to abortion in, in, in states that have been introduced in 2022. It's also worth noting that there are some bills in blue states that have been introduced to try to expand access to abortion coverage. So you see this huge divergence across American states in how they have responded to Dobbs. Okay, that's really clear. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about what pro-choice advocates are doing to try and take advantage of this moment? So I think it's worth looking at some of the states where there is a concerted attempt to try to protect access to abortion in the wake of Dobbs. So in a state that's likely to continue restricting abortion access, how pro-choice advocates are are trying to act. And so Michigan, as Idris has reported, is an interesting example of that because you can take a few different routes. One is you can challenge the, the state laws through litigation. You can try to advance a ballot initiative in order to protect abortion rights within the Constitution. And then, of course, you have this playing out in elections where pro-choice advocates are trying to elect a different roster of of pro-abortion candidates to state office. So there are a few different uh, paths that people are trying to take. It's not exactly clear which is necessarily going to be the most effective. Litigation is one route, but you see in Michigan and well some other states, advocates trying to seek more permanent lasting protection by really codifying this within the Constitution. Idris, when you and I first talked about the impact of abortion on the midterms after the Dobbs decision came down from the Supreme Court, I think both you and I were sceptical that it would move the needle much. And so maybe we were wrong about that, right? The data at the moment suggests that we were. And if we were, we should hold our hands up and try and figure out why. 
I mean, do you think we were wrong? And if so, why? I mean, is it the case that you're just seeing Democrats more willing to turn out? I mean, it it seems like this is an issue where people don't really change their minds, right? If something real is going on here, what is that thing? I think you're right. I think there are a few things going on here. And the biggest sort of evidence that this is a huge deal was the Kansas referendum um, that we saw, right, where in a very conservative state, a referendum that would have made it easier to restrict abortion failed by quite a lot. But that's different from uh, what you should expect in the midterm. So for example, Kansas actually has a Democratic governor who is running for re-election this year. She's not going to win by 20 points, even if abortion is is an important issue. The way to think about it, I think, is that it can have a marginal effect of a few points, which is pretty significant in politics, where not a lot of things change people's perceptions. Um, and in the states where things are decided by a few points, like Michigan, like Pennsylvania, like Arizona, we could expect it to maybe change the outcome. I think the other thing that's happening here is that uh, most Americans, if you poll them, are largely in favor of abortion, of the option of abortion sometime in the first trimester, and largely unfavorable of towards abortion after that, including in the second trimester. But the menu that Republicans are offering is not something in that range. It is no abortion, sometimes even without exceptions for rape and incest. And that's just extreme and turns people off. So I think, you know, part of what's increasing the effect of this is that the alternative that people are presented with looks so extreme, even if Americans are not really so clearly pro-choice or or pro-life. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that one thing that has been very evident in the Trump era is this, the merits of performative extremism on the right. And so it's, seems to be pretty effective, frankly, with the big lie. But I wonder if there's something about abortion that just makes performative extremism harder. You know, are you really going to put that doctor in jail for performing an abortion? Are you really going to force a 13-year-old girl who's been raped to have the baby? I mean, these are just questions that are very, very practical and tangible, and they're so obviously extreme. And so, you know, if you go back to American polling on this, Americans do favor some restrictions on abortion, polls suggest, but nowhere near the type of restriction that many states are proposing. And so I just feel like this kind of performative stance that Republicans have taken recently on abortion uh, is not as effective. That seems right to me. And that helps to explain why if you look at our midterm model and look at the chances of Republicans winning a majority in the Senate before the Dobbs decision, our model clearly favored Republicans to take the majority. Since then, there's been a big move in the model. And now Democrats are the very clear favorites. I mean, that timing might be coincidence, but it just seems like too big a coincidence to ignore. OK, we'll go back to a milestone election for female voters in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, this is a really good time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. In addition to our excellent coverage of Queen Elizabeth II, our Ukraine coverage has been absolutely outstanding this week, covering the breakthrough that Ukrainian forces have made in the east of the country. We've got really good journalists there on the ground writing about that for us. Idris, what have you found to be particularly interesting in the past week's coverage? Going back to Queen Elizabeth II, I really enjoyed uh, Duncan Robinson's Badgett column this week, which is actually about the namesake of his column, Walter Badgett, who edited The Economist and wrote a uh, defense of the weird institution of the British monarchy, which is, I think, a very interesting read for anyone who wants to understand how a liberal-minded institution can make peace with uh, monarchy. 
Yeah, I'd second that. It's a very good column. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. From the mid-19th century, women in America fought for decades to have the vote. The Constitution doesn't say much about voting rights. The Founding Fathers left that to the states to decide. Beginning with Wyoming in 1890, ten states had granted voting rights to their weaker sex citizens by 1917. But the suffragettes saw equal voting rights as key in their fight for equality. Then, in 1919, came the climactic moment in the suffragette campaign. Congress approved the 19th Amendment, which provided for the voting rights of women. The 19th Amendment was ratified by the required three-quarters of states, and in August 1920, the right of women to vote was enshrined in the Constitution. And in the following November, the ladies appeared at the polls on Election Day by the hundreds of thousands. They had won their right to vote. The amendment of womanhood in the United States was now complete. Of course, it wasn't as simple as this film from 1960 suggests. The 1920 presidential election took place two and a half months after the 19th Amendment was ratified, and expectations were high. Women, with their newfound right to vote, would surely all flock to the polling booths and decide the outcome. America's present need is not heroic, but healing. Not nostrum, but normal thing. Not revolution, but restoration. And they largely flocked there to vote for Warren G. Harding. Not surgery, but serenity. Harding's promise of a return to normalcy after the upheaval of World War I proved irresistible at the ballot box. But it proved irresistible to men, too. Harding won by a landslide. There was no obvious difference in how women voted, no single block or easily discernible women's issues. The League of Women Voters didn't endorse a particular candidate. They wanted simply to get out the female vote, whoever that vote was then cast for. But turnout among women was low. Estimates are that around 40% of women voted, compared with nearly 70% of men. Some chose not to, uninterested in their new power. Some states, especially in the South, still made it hard for women to register and vote. And it would be 45 more years before the barriers that disenfranchised non-white women were torn down by the Voting Rights Act. It wasn't until 1980 that turnout among women matched men, and until a discernible difference could be seen in how they voted. Now from CBS News election headquarters in New York, here again is Walter Cronkite. The gender gap in that election was eight points, with far more men voting for Ronald Reagan. The 40th president was not known for his feminism. There are, of course, patterns. More women, especially women of colour, vote Democrat than Republican. In the last midterms in 2018, high turnout among women helped the party capture Congress. But do enough digging, crunch enough numbers, and you can find patterns in any group. Plenty of women vote Republican, and plenty are anti-abortion. Women voters are not a monolith. 
Charlotte, is it helpful to think about women voters, female voters as a block in any sense? I'm, my bias is kind of no, but maybe I'm wrong. I think there's some utility to thinking about women voters, uh, though, of course, you have to break down that enormous share of America's population into, into chunks. On the most simplistic level, I was reading about how the role of women in elections really changed around 1980 where prior to that, uh, women didn't really display much preference between right and left. But then there, um, at least according to some research, there seems to have been a shift that was precipitated in part by the rightward turn of the Republican Party under Reagan on matters such as the social safety net and the environment, which consistently poll as being more important to women than to men, that there was this gap in voting patterns versus men that appeared. Uh, White women, of course, have leaned to the right. White women, the majority of them voted for Trump, uh, even in 2020. So I think that distinction is very important to keep in mind as we talk about women as a monolith. I think that up until recently, if you look at the polling, women weren't that dramatically more likely to identify as pro-choice than uh, men. And that divergence, which is now real, happened, started to happen around 2018. Can I ask you, um, sorry to steal the questioning from John, but I'm really curious, Idris, just for a second, if you could help me make sense of how important some of these registration numbers are. So we've reported within The Economist about the shifting patterns of registration. So in the two weeks after Dobbs, the number of people who were registering to vote jumped by 10%. And that number increased much more rapidly for women than for men, which one can draw a connection perhaps to the Dobbs decision itself. How important is that when I think about the midterms? How much do new registrations matter? Um, I think they matter a bit. And you would expect to see a big surge right after Dobbs. But the big question is going to be what share of the electorate do these new registrations constitute? And there, you know, in the Pennsylvania case, even though the surge was very rapid, um, it was something like 1% or maybe even a little bit less of the electorate that voted in 2018. So, you know, Pennsylvania often has elections that are decided by less, so it could make a difference. But I think that the important thing to keep in mind is not necessarily the, the pace of change, but also the denominator as well. Yeah, thanks, Idris. And thank you, Charlotte. I did actually mean to ask that question and forgot because I'm curious about the answer as well. So so that's uh, thanks for doing my job for me. Um, it's really striking the gender gap in American politics at the moment. I mean, having said that, I tend not to think about female voters as a block, and I certainly don't. I mean, as we heard, the gender gap gets pretty wide in 1980 when Ronald Reagan's elected. Then it declines a bit. And then in 2016, there's an absolute blowout in terms of the gender gap. I think uh, female voters go for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump by about 11 points. So it's a really, really big margin. And another thing that interests me here, while we're taking the long view and thinking about the history back to the 1920s, there was a strange essay written by Peter Thiel in 2009 in which he talked about 
why libertarianism had such a grim future in America. And he basically says, there's a quote that I'm going to pull out. He says, the 1920s were the last decade in American history during which one could be genuinely optimistic about politics. Since 1920, the vast increase in welfare beneficiaries and the extension of the franchise to women, two constituencies that are notoriously tough for libertarians, have rendered the notion of capitalist democracy into an oxymoron. So you have Peter Thiel, who's now a very big political donor and backing candidates in this Senate cycle. They're arguing back in 2009 that basically giving women the vote had destroyed the libertarian future in America, uh, which I found pretty interesting. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to look at where else abortion is impacting the midterms races. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Idris, we've already talked about Michigan, but this is a live issue in elections all over America this year. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Democrats all across the country have been motivated by trying to undo the demise of Roe versus Wade after the Supreme Court decision in June, and they've had some success. So last month, the special election for New York's 19th congressional district was held, and although it was a Republican-leaning seat, um, a Democrat named Pat Ryan ultimately won, and that was after he made abortion the central issue of his campaign. When our country called, he served. Pat Ryan graduated from West Point and risked his life in combat. He fought for our families, for our freedom. And freedom includes a woman's right to choose. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, it left abortion policy completely in the hands of individual states to decide. So while it's fairly clear what Democratic state officials like Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan are running on, it's a bit unclear what Democrats running for federal office can do. Do they try to run on passing legislation again, like the Women's Health Protections Act, which failed, but would have codified Roe and even gone beyond it in some ways? Or is it a matter of just preventing Republicans from trying to impose a nationwide ban? I spoke with Democrat Abigail Spanberger, who is running for a third term in the Virginia 7th Congressional District. It's a marquee race. A Democrat is running in a Republican-leaning district in a very unfavorable year. And I asked her how important there the future of abortion policy would become. Certainly, I have fielded more questions about abortion. Uh, it has been brought up to me uh, at town halls, at events, at campaign events. Uh, almost everywhere I go, there's someone who asks a question related to abortion, uh, which is, is certainly not before the Dobbs decision, uh, what we had seen, what I had witnessed on the ground. Um, so I, I think that there has been pretty significant impact of what this decision means and, and what it means in terms of people's attention to and engagement with politics. With an ad like yours, the, the recent one you did attacking your opponent on her past comments on abortion, 
who are you trying to speak to? Is it a wavering middle of, of people who might be in the middle of abortion policy? Or is it Democratic voters who might otherwise stay at home? Who's the intended audience for something like that? So in, in our race, I, I launched an ad where we highlight the fact that my opponent has uh, doubted whether women can get pregnant as a result of rape, where she has expressed support for a nationwide ban on abortion and said a a host of things related to abortion and uh, the freedoms of women. And so we launched this ad to make sure that people know not only where she stands on the issue of women's rights and the Dobbs decision, but the fact that, frankly, uh, her opinions are based on ideology and not even facts and science. And so the target audience here is essentially everyone. If abortion is a primary issue or a central concern for a voter, they should know where my opponent stands. You um, pride yourself on your bipartisanship in Congress. And I wonder on this issue, is there a federal compromise that you can envision? You know, like the Women's Health Protection Act strikes me as a fairly maximalist law. It didn't have very much chance of getting any Republican votes. But would you like to broker something that maybe established a basic floor, perhaps the right to an abortion in the case of rape, incest, or life of the mother? Or or do you think this is something that can't be negotiated effectively? I think that the way that you phrased it is correct. I think that, you know, states could make their own decisions with Roe as the floor. And so I think that now when we are facing the reality that what was perceived to be understood to be settled case law is no more uh, than what comes next. We, we have, as you mentioned, in the House passed the Women's Health Protection Act, which did not secure bipartisan support and certainly has no path in the Senate. Uh, so then the discussion goes back to, is there a, um, a kind of a baseline floor uh, serving the same purpose that Roe had? And this is where I look to my Senate counterparts uh, to do some of the heavy lifting. We know that there are currently the votes in the House uh, to pass such an effort, but it will be meeting that 60 vote margin that's going to be the hurdle. Regular listeners will know that we like to check in on the race for Pennsylvania's open Senate seat which has been eventful. Last weekend, John Fetterman, the Democratic candidate, held only his second public rally since returning to the campaign trail after he suffered a stroke in May. It was devoted entirely to the threat to abortion rights uh, and held in the suburban area of Montgomery County, just outside of Philadelphia, which is probably one of the most important places that he needs to win. My name is John Fetterwoman! Many of the crowd were decked out in pink John Fetter Woman t-shirts, which he's now selling on his website. Right next, codify Roe. Codify Roe. Right now, we have the numbers to do it, but we're not. Send me to D.C. to make sure you know I will be there to be that vote. Thank you on that. And Democrats got a political gift this week when, on the Republican side, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina surprised many, including some of his own colleagues, by unveiling legislation that would force blue states to adopt a much more restricted abortion policy rather than let them decide for themselves, which is what conservatives had previously argued should be the case. I think we should have a law at the federal level that would say after 15 weeks, no abortion on demand except in cases of rape, incest, to save the life of the mother. And that should be where America's at.
Charlotte, what do you make of the electoral politics of Lindsey Graham's proposal? Yeah, the electoral politics, I don't know. I find the proposal weird, frankly. I mean, the idea that this is going to be the sign of moderation from Republicans, I, I don't know. Does that work? It seems kind of weird to me. What do you make of it, Idris? Yeah, I think the Republicans are reacting to it as a bit of an own goal. They think that there is no point in saying that they would try to impose restrictions on blue states um, until after they at least had the majority. Now this just gives something for Democrats to run against, which I think is true. That's why you saw Republicans sort of push away Graham's suggestion this week. The other interesting thought I had was that a 15-week limit is actually fairly close to what a lot of Western European countries have. So earlier this year, I believe France increased its limit from 12 weeks to 14 weeks, um, which is still below the 15-week threshold. And in fact, the Mississippi lawyers uh, who argued at the case that eventually became Dobbs were trying to impose a 15-week limit. Um, I think that just suggests that you know the Roe standard that America had and the English standard of 24 weeks or fetal viability is a bit you know more out of the mainstream of Western democracies. And I think uh, a lot of observers of America seem to realize. I think, though, this points to a broader challenge within the Republican Party, which is that being pro-life and anti-abortion was a hugely, hugely effective signaling strategy, not just in recent years, but ever since Roe, right? That you could say that you were pro-life and it was a very effective signal to voters to align yourself with their social priorities. But now you have to get into the nitty gritty of it. So what do you exactly do you mean? Are we talking about 15 weeks? Are we talking about exceptions for the health of the mother? Are we talking about exceptions for rape? Um, you have in Michigan, as you've pointed out, the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, laying out exactly what it is that Republicans in that state want to do. You had this great quote from Whitmer in your piece, address in which she was talking about the Republican Party wanting to make abortion a felony and there being no exceptions for rape and incest and putting doctors in jail. So you know, you start to get beyond the signaling to the practicalities of this. And there's a degree to which this really helps Democrats, I think, not only in Michigan, but even in a state like Alaska, you have Mary Piltola, who won the special election and now has to be in the general election in November. She has an ad talking about taking away freedom. So there are states that even lean red, but actually have a pretty strong libertarian streak um, because I'm now Alaska obsessed. I'll note that Alaskans favor abortions by a larger margin than do voters in California. You know, I, I think that the way in which this plays out, not just in signaling, but in practicality, again, continues to be problematic for Republicans. And Lindsey Graham is just one example of that. One thing Stevie mentioned to me that I think is a good point is that unlike on other issues, on this one, Democrats have had very cohesive messaging and have stuck to it and it's proven effective and that's a divergence from you know their struggle to uh to effectively communicate where they are and to effectively define their opponents i want to say just one thing even about blue states so you had this instance because it's not like new york is going to eliminate access to abortion if lee zeldin the republican candidate becomes governor and defeats the sitting governor kathy hochul and you see kathy hochul trying to use abortion as well in her own campaign. So it's not just about banning abortion outright. It's about having increasing investment in, in healthcare providers who can take in those who are seeking abortions in New York or traveling to New York from other states. It's about having certain 
health officials in place who are who are more pro-abortion, you know, Lee Zeldin, her opponent, did praise the Dobbs decision when it came down, and now he's trying to back off. So I think even in blue states where you might have some competitive, you know, some purple districts, uh, you see Democrats really trying to use Dobbs to their advantage. There's something I'm curious about here. I mean, the Dobbs decision essentially hands abortion law back to the states, right? And most of the elections we're talking about at the moment are elections to Congress and the Senate. And I don't think any of us thinks that we're about to get a federal abortion law, um, despite Lindsey Graham's best efforts. Maybe I'm wrong there, but it seems unlikely to me. So why is abortion quite so important to elections to federal offices that don't, I think, have the ability to change abortion law? I think that both sides think that they're not that far away from being able to impose their will on the rest of the country. We heard John Fetterman just now say that he would like to be elected to the Senate in order to eliminate the filibuster to pass the Women's Health Protection Act, which would essentially make Roe the law of the land through Congress. Democrats, you know, they they passed that through the House already. If they kept the House, they'd be able to do that. That's their hope is that, you know, with enough people, they'd be able to do that. And likewise, for Republicans, I think that Lindsey Graham is saying the quiet part out loud in terms of what they would like to do. So uh, it's motivational for both because, you know, even though it's not possible now, both are hoping that uh, with the right sort of supermajority and the right president that they'd be able to impose their will on the American people, right? Yeah, I think if politicians ran on what it is they could do practically in the short term, it would be a very quiet campaign. People would just stand and look at each other in silence. So you run on what you want to do, right? And I think that for both parties, in some ways, Dobbs is is a lesson in the long game that Republicans have been at this for decades. And they were very, very systematic in thinking about Uh, how to advance federal appointments in lower courts, clearly in in, in building up the case to help sway the Supreme Court eventually. So long-term efforts do play off. And I think savvy voters kind of get that. And then there's the tangible reality that if you're in favor of abortion rights, that clearly a Democratic-controlled Congress is better for, in your estimation, than a Republican-controlled one, even if you don't think anything's going to happen in the next few years. So I think that those factors mean that this continues to be an issue that is motivating. All right. Well, let's leave that there for now. Before I let you both go, I have a quiz. We spoke earlier about the 1920 election, which was won by Warren G. Harding. When he died in office in 1923, The Economist wrote that British regret at his passing arises from a very widespread feeling that the loss is not America's alone, but the world's, a sentiment which seems appropriate at the moment. Question one. The 1920 election is unique as the only election where both vice presidential candidates would go on to become president. Can you name them? Hmm. Coolidge? Coolidge being one, 1920? Coolidge, I don't know who the other one would be. Um... Hoover. Charlotte, you get a point because you got there first for Coolidge. Coolidge was Harding's vice president and took over after his death. Franklin Roosevelt was the vice presidential candidate of the losing Democrat, James Cox. So there, it was FDR. Hmm. You're a while. Interesting. There you go. My favorite questions, my favorite category of questions here are unsuccessful running mates. (laughs) For (laughs) I would like to note that I won... The quiz last week, just in case anyone forgot, I did win the quiz last week, and I just got a point. 
So let's just dwell on it for a few moments. You're on a real hot streak at the moment. What can I yeah. say? I mean, bring on question two. I mean, let's not. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> question two. Socialist candidate Eugene Debs won 3.4% of the vote in the 1920 election. He was unable to go out on the campaign trail, however. Why was that? Because he was in prison. He was indeed in prison. Oh, very good. Uh, sorry, I, I, I had to cut it real close <laughs> just, to, just, to, just to cut you off. No, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. What was he in prison for? He violated the Espionage Act because he distributed flyers saying that people shouldn't serve in World War One. Is that right? Ah. That is absolutely right. I, I would give Idris a bonus point, but Do then it. that would upset. Do it. <laughs> no, give him a bonus point. Okay. Really? Oh, it's 2-1. Yeah. Okay. No, it's okay. Yeah. President Harding then commuted his sentence in 1921. I'm not sure who comes out ahead in this one, but both of you have turned in a really creditable performance. So congratulations. Done far better than I would have. Well, that is it for this week. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz with research by Erica Shin. Our sound engineer is Nicola Rofast. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can explore our whole Checks and Balance archive at economist.com slash checkspod. And you can get in touch with us via email. The address for that is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance for you next week. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.